This episode is brought to you by Left of Boom. We empower leaders to respond to crisis proactively and with confidence. When crisis strikes, organisations face a battle of survival under intense scrutiny. How they are judged depends on the performance of individuals and teams huddled in war rooms, working to provide a coherent response under maximum pressure. In Crisis Talks, I aim to capture the insights of people who have responded to a crisis and their stories of leadership, courage and resilience in the face of extreme adversity. Their lessons will help us all be better prepared to preempt and respond proactively and with confidence. My name is Grant Chisnell and this is Crisis Talks. Today, ladies and gentlemen, I've uh, got the privilege of interviewing Cameron Schwab, who's who's had a, a formidable career career in the AFL uh, as a CEO, who started at the age of 24 with Richmond Football Club, um, and then went on to spend roughly 25 years in different appointments across three different clubs. Uh, so, broken a few records along the journey there, Cameron. Welcome along to Crisis Talks today. Probably didn't just break a few records; probably broke a few other things. <laughs> well, there's, uh, no, there's a few ups and downs in that. Um in that 25 years, that's for sure. But there's no doubt I was um, you know, blessed right from the start to uh, to have um, an involvement in something which uh, probably my earliest recollections in life other than falling in love with Batman was falling in love with footy. And, I, uh, know, I noted that photo there that uh, you'd uh, adjusted as well and artistically sort of covered in the front cover of your, right. your book, which had you as Batman and who was Robin? My little brother. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was a, originally I did as a... Um, I did a series of portraits with, um, it was on midlife males and, and long-term relationships between midlife males. And there was one I did with a, a couple of guys who, you know, they met in prep together mm. and, you know, guys who played footy together mm. you know, and who, who are now in their 50s who have maintained the relationship. Yeah, and so Brothers is a powerful one and I'm, I'm very close to my brother, Brendan. Mm. And uh, he's four years younger than me, so, and I'm a bit taller than he is as well so I think we've probably always assumed the Batman and Robin <laughs> situation a, a little bit and uh, yeah so I, I did the drawing and then uh, afterwards I I, uh, I, I like actually uh, picking up my art later on and uh, and sometimes almost vandalizing it in some ways trying to trying to um, break down some of the um, often there's a bit of pride in your art you know you, you get a bit uh, egocentric as you as you as you're doing it and I, and I like to be able to take it apart a bit you know, with the with the wisdom of um, an, of a later reflection, and it's like sometimes you pick up something you wrote a year ago, and then you like to actually have a different take on it. You realise how much you've changed, even in that year. And uh, yeah, that was that's one of my favourite drawings, actually. They are a reflection of what you're thinking or feeling at that point in time. Yeah, very much. And creativity is is one third of really what the mantra that you talk about with your business. Yeah. So, how important is creativity to you, and how important is it to a to a leader? Uh, I think it's, you know, personally it's it's important. I think the uh, we we live in a world where there is a sense of overwhelm, and and a lot of the overwhelm is of our our own making. And, and going back and studying art full time in my fifties was probably that reflection as much as anything. That there's not as much going on as you think there is. You know, there are obviously a lot of important things, but I don't think we really dig through 
and ask ourselves that very question, what's important here? And, and, and I don't think there's anything more important than creativity. And creativity in this case, we're talking about it from an artistic perspective, but creativity in that how do we actually find a solution in difficult and challenging circumstances? And one of the reasons for the overwhelm is just the, the, the volume of stuff which is actually coming at us and, and not being able to delineate between you know, what's important, what's not important. And, and, and becoming a full-time artist, uh, I, I realised, was not just about... You know, there's this um, uh, myth about the, the, the mystique of the, the creative, that somehow there's some bolt of lightning and you know, some <laughs> wonder you know, emerges from the, the pen or the paintbrush or, or whatever it is. Well, my, having worked with some really uh, talented young artists, I, I realised that those who produced the most interesting art were the ones who actually had... A, um, a wonderful system of, of producing art but they also were people who you know like in any pursuit in life uh, found it to be something which they were very energized by and so therefore by being energized by it they um, they're able to you know work through fatigue they were actually able to to um, take a wholehearted approach to, to whatever they were doing so from that perspective, it's uh, for me the the antidote. And this is actually a quote from a fellow named David White, W H Y T E. He's a wonderful writer. He mm. he says that the the antidote to exhaustion is not just you know getting more sleep. It's, it's wholeheartedness, and, and I really like that that response. And and I found with the creative stuff is that that's the place I can be personally most wholehearted is when I feel like I'm uh, making something. And uh, and there's a bit of breaking to make it, even as it related to my introduction. Yeah. Well, there's an inherent vulnerability in artists because everything yeah. they're putting out there is something of themselves. Yeah, no, that's a great observation because I think people underestimate that totally. That mm. I thought I was putting stuff out there as a CEO, but it's got nothing like putting stuff out there. And and even to the point where, you know, there's a different appreciation. Some people can walk through an art gallery and just walk through an art gallery. Whereas other people will go into a gallery just to look at one piece of work for and, and observe and try and understand it and go deep into it. And there is a, a quite a peripheral view of most forms of art, art, you know, and even in, I'm like this with music, I, I don't like a certain uh, person's new album as compared with their old album, but it was actually just my familiarity with their old album, mm. which was what I loved. It was almost my own nostalgia that I loved, you know, and... I don't know how many times uh, Mick Jagger's sung you know, Satisfaction, but I'd say it's a few times. And but he, he, I don't know, would he ever get over it? I'm, I'm, I'm sure he does. And so even in from an artistic point of view, when you produce something new, um, ca- comparisons and expectations kick in pretty quickly. And and the comparisons to the expectations, the most dangerous ones, are the ones you have of yourself, but also other people. In in when it comes to art, are looking at your stuff and they can say, oh, actually, I liked your old stuff better, or you know the. Um, I like it when you drew things that look like things, you know. <laughs> and, and so most of the art I do put out is, mo- is, is more probably illustration than, than, than the majority of the art that I've done. Um, but it sort of suits the, the story that I'm telling, particularly as it relates to the use of metaphor in, um, from sport mm. in, in, uh, in trying to explain things. Well, art as a metaphor for creativity in business yeah. Yeah. Is, a, is a really strong one. And how did you... How did you find, did you have much of a creative outlet as a 24-year-old 
taking over the Richmond Football Club as the first, I think general manager was the appointment was, at the time, yeah. bracket CEO. Um, early days in, in really professionalising the level of sport that we're seeing now. Yeah. Was there much opportunity for you to be creative in, in that role initially? There probably was. And, and look, and I think it turned out that there, there was, but that wasn't how I was thinking at the time. Because how I was thinking at the time was how, how do you actually think like everyone else, really? Mm. I wasn't trying to think like me much. And that, that's because uh, there's a lot of fear associated with that. And even, even, in, even in taking on the role, you know, the, I was because I was young, the, the people who were the peers, my peers at that stage, as in those who were CEOs of other AFL clubs, most obviously, uh, might have been 20, 25 years older than, than I was. And, and they very much grew up in a sort of control command environment and there was still there is still a little bit of a place for that in in leadership and, and people might underestimate when things are in crisis for instance that's actually that element does come into it again uh, and so I started trying to lead like I saw others leading rather than as any extension of who I was and when I uh, when I finished when I was at school the thing I was always going to study probably was fine art or something which was related to more creative pursuit uh, design or, or something similar and then I uh, find myself working in footy. But I, I think I always took a, quite a creative approach to recruiting, as an example. You know, I was in recruiting before that, and I really enjoyed that. And I would, like, I, I would have thought that there probably was a fair bit of creativity in the way I approached that. And, and it was born out of the fact that I was operating at the Melbourne Football Club at the time, and we were a very limited and constrained club. And so, therefore, you had to think a bit deeper about how we could find a solution. And, and we managed to forge that by doing things at that time a little bit differently, which I think in the main most clubs would now do. Um, and then when I, all of a sudden I find myself as a, as, a, as a CEO, I stopped doing all of that. But then I, I reckon after about 12 or 18 months, I started to find my feet and realised there was a place for it and I had enough confidence in myself to actually start thinking that way and continue to think that way. And one of the things which came out of Richmond during that time, which probably was a, a fully creative thing was a thing called the Save Our Skin campaign which was a big fundraising campaign and there was a, a pure element of creativity behind that even the name Save Our Skin was a bit different SOS and mm. and um, and it was uh, we raised you know over a million dollars in 1990 which effectively saved the club and I think it was built on uh, a, a process of creativity but the most beautiful form of creativity when it actually uh, when other people then relate to what it's trying to say, that people identify with, with the message, they identify with, uh, you know, what it's being said almost personally, and they responded personally to it. In, in this case, by donating money to their footy club, yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is a pretty important thing at the time. Yeah. Did you do you find that there's with the comments recently from Don Pike, for example, about the levels of contentment in the yeah. game? Do you see that that scrutiny, the comparisons that you talk about from an artistic point of view, do you think that they're starting to overwhelm now the, the whole environment? Yeah, they certainly have that. There's definitely that risk. I think there was always that risk because it's a, you know, I think we can all be overwhelmed by our circumstances regardless. You know, but when, when, when you're in a, a two-team town as he was, um, high expectations, expectations way ahead probably of what their fundamental capability as it would seem um, a lot of judgment associated with with sport and it's very inexact the game itself is really inexact you know it's an oval ball on an oval ground you know it's a very random game um, I think in terms of random ratios it's right up there in, in, in world sport because of those 
that the structure of the game. But yeah, no, I can. I can. I, as soon as he said it, I totally related to it. And, and what it took, personally, or oh yeah, yeah, it took me straight back to places where you'd almost wake up with a sense of dread, hmm. where where the, your first, you know, the first light coming into your room when you wake up in the morning and your first sense of consciousness is one of dread. And, you know, I can, I've got very vivid memories of that feeling. And, and it might've been something which I felt very out of control in, in regard to what to do next, or I might've felt that it was um, something of my making, that I, I'd created a crisis or I'd created, you know, a situation where, uh, uh, I should have known better, or I should have done better, you know. And uh, so, you know, I, I definitely could relate to it. But I think even in, I, I would say, even despite all of that, the your best work is going to come at those times. It's, it's it, when you're forced into a situation where you're feeling really constrained. Uh, you can either butt up against it, or you can try and find a solution. And, and, and perhaps even the butting up against it's actually part of the solution because you're realising that that's what you, in fact, you have to do. Because every so often, we, most of the time, we just butt up against it and we hold our ground and everything's okay. But in, in a lot of circumstances, that's not that, that's a form of default thinking, which is not which is basically saying, yeah, I've got the right solution, but the problem's changed. You know, I, I, that solution doesn't suit this problem anymore. And, and I found um, probably the best work I did was when I was prepared to... Uh, look at it in a way where it had almost got, you know, it was almost at that desperate stage. The danger is if you're losing personal confidence at the same time, it's very hard to think that way. It gets, it just gets too much. And I don't think there's many more capable people in, in footy than Don Pike, you know, in terms of just pure horsepower that mm -hmm. he brings. Yeah. That, you know, highly intelligent, very articulate, very experienced, got an amazing heritage in sport and with his family. And if he's feeling that way, well, the chances are it was quite, it was a very legitimate way of thinking and yeah. feeling, yeah. When you were in those moments yourself, mm. did you have someone to go to? Um, at different times I did. As we talked about as the loneliness of command from, yeah, from my military yeah. background. No, there's always gonna be that, I think. And, and I think, but there, there's almost a beauty in that as well. Mm. Because it's, you know, the old, um, you know, Tommy Hafey, if it's going to be, it's up to me type <laughs> scenario. You know, there is a little bit of that with it. Um, the danger is that you actually think you're the person who's got to come up with all the solutions. That's the danger. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ride in on my white horse and I'm going to say, um, you know, we're heading up this hill or heading down this hill. Whereas the most courageous thing you can do is to, to ride in and say, look, I've got a view of this. It's only a view, but I've got a lot of confidence in the people who are in this room now. And so, how how do I now, as a leader, draw out the best of what's in this room? And and in the end, the problem will probably it'll probably still sit with you, but you get the benefit of the insight. Mm. And and then, if you've got enough trust in the room, well, people will actually say, Cameron, you're the bloke who's stuffing this up. Just so you know, because your ego's got in the road here, or you'll get you got angry when you shouldn't have got angry. Were you told that? Oh yeah. Yeah. When was that? Uh, no, a couple of times, I think. You know, I, I got told that really early in the piece. Mm. But not, not, in, not in that... Not as such. It was actually a wonderful mentor I had early in the piece was a guy by the name of Neville Crowe. Neville Crowe was the president of, of Richmond. 
So he's the one who took a chance on me early. I remember even at the press conference, he appointed me into the role. He said, uh, Cameron's 24 going on 44. And I'm then thinking, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> because I, I literally, I was, even um, physically, I, I was a, a late developer. I, I looked young as well. And I, I probably felt young. I felt probably older than most in that I'd had a unique footy education growing up in it. And I was fanatical about it, so I'd educated myself a lot on it. But he, basically there was no capacity for me to realise whatever I had because I was, you know, allowing the fact that I'm 24 and the CEO of Richmond to get in the road of the fact that I'm just actually the CEO of Richmond and I've got a job to do here, you know. And, mm. and, ne- and Neville was wonderful with me. He, he, was, a, he was a by nature a teacher and I, and I learnt that. And, I, and actually the, the best people I met in my time in sport were by at their very heart of their um, their nature where they were, they were teachers. You know, whether it was Ron Barassi, whether it was Tom Hafey, whether it was Alan Jeans, whether it was Neil Danaher, mm. Alistair Clarkson, they are at their very heart teachers. Mm. We call them coaches mainly, but they, yeah. they, they would see any they would see a conversation between you and I as an opportunity to teach. Yeah. You know, and or to show you something to grow. You know? mm. And Neville Crow was that. And so it was never he never actually made me feel young, but he'd always He'd, he'd, he'd pull my coat from time to time and just say, look, you know, is this your ego talking? Yeah. Is this your ego talking? And that's not a bad question. Did the, I remember reading that, the, that Jim Steins had said at one stage that they pulled you in. Did they give you that same sort of frank feedback at that point in time as well? Or was that a different type of discussion at that point? No, I think it was a very different discussion. <laughs> that one. How did yeah. that one go? Um, that, that was just a, that was a different conversation all around. That was mm. a... Um, that's one of those very challenging phases where, where you know there's probably no solution. There was just a difference of opinion, mm. difference of view. And it was a difference of view on um, at a whole lot of levels, even as it related to what is a CEO supposed to do compared with the board. Yeah. And so yeah, every so often, three really wonderful questions for any person is to always have, the first question is to ask yourself, what does the role expect of me? What does the role expect of me at any time? And then the second question, and that, that can relate to obviously the, the technical capability of the role, but also the, uh, the leadership expectations mm. as it relates to whatever context the organisation's at at that time. And the second question is, what do I expect of myself? As in, what do you need from the role? Mm-hmm. And if there's incongruency between those two, you're in a really challenging situation. One of the problems from a CEO's perspective is where do you take that conversation then? Do you take it to your board? Well, your boards are eight to ten-headed beasts. Yeah. So you might have some people who agree, other people who don't, and, yeah. and that can actually happen. That's not an unusual situation. Mm. And so the reflection often on those conversations are, well, at least can we have the conversation and then each of us get to make up our mind? We get to make up our mind as to... What your role, do you need me to do anything different here as your CEO? And if so, you then have to make the choice as to, is that for you? Is that, is that what you wanted from the role? And that might, that sounds very good in practice, but we've also got, you know, mouths to feed and a mortgage yep. to pay. And, you know, so I spend a lot of time with CEOs who spend a lifetime climbing a mountain and get to the top and don't like the view. Yeah. Mainly because of that, that there's a difference between what they expect of the role and what the role expects of them. Mm-hmm. Or there's confusion. 
between those two, and they're unable to actually sort through that confusion. So that time at Melbourne was was difficult from that point of view. But it was a very, I was a very, um, I'd like to think there was a, a certain empathy in in the approach because it was also at a time when Jim was very unwell, mm. Jim Steins, and yeah. and we were working very hard to. Um, fill a massive leadership void that he was only able to fill in part and and the part that he was filling was singularly you know fundamental and important to our footy club and then we couldn't see him or we couldn't have those same expectations because he was trying to keep himself alive during mm. that time mm. and so I um, I always get a bit tad emotional about that period of my life actually because it was you're watching someone who you had a deep respect for dying, mm. basically, but also recognizing and understanding that um, we sort of needed him. You know, we needed what he was giving us, and and that doesn't mean you always agree. Look, you can no. actually disagree, but even the process of disagreeing on something became challenging because of that. And and I don't think there was anyone to blame. And 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 they, those having disagreements as to what we do next as um, yeah, you know, at the very best of times, let alone with that context, you know. And then he passed away. Yeah, and it was a very sad time for our club. A very sad time for a lot of people. Yeah. Certainly, uh, those sort of moments bring home, I think, some of the important things in life. Yeah. What did you learn from that experience? Um. I think it was probably the layering of other experiences that I'd had. I, I, my, my life changed dramatically in one day when my father died suddenly and he was my mentor. And, and I just real, realised that uh, you know, probably I needed a hero as much as I needed a dad. And, and my parents separated when I was in my teens and so it was a, we had a challenging period at an important time of life. And then I work in footy and I build an adult relationship with my dad. And then in a situation where, you know, I, I went from having, you know, the 10, min, 10 best minutes of my life was, was him sitting on my bed when I was a kid talking about the Richmond Footy Club when he'd come home from work to having the most important 10 minutes of my life was when I'm out of my depth in senior roles ringing him up on the way home or you know and just having 10, 10 minutes half an hour and, it all, and always would have those and then all of a sudden they're not there and it happened really quickly and suddenly and in you know really difficult circumstances and so probably from that point of view and there was always an element of um, uh, the humanness of your heroes and, and I understood that with, with even Jim because I'd known Jim for a long time because he was 18 when he first came over and he was at Melbourne when I was there. And I was in awe of the stuff that he'd been able to achieve. But we knew each other personally enough to, um, to have the sorts of conversations which weren't, uh, which weren't um, CEO to president or they were just on life, really. And I think there's just a wonderful question always to ask yourself is... Uh, and we said it a bit earlier, is just what's important here? You know, really, when it comes to the crunch, what's important? And if, if you don't actually almost start your day by asking that question, 
you know, what, what's important ends up being the noisiest thing, you know, the email or the thing buzzing on, in your pocket or on your wrist or something like that. And I think it's probably those experiences, even, uh, you know, no doubt the most difficult time of my, from a career perspective and a personal perspective was that period at Melbourne. But I also now know as a reflection, um, it was arguably the most important, you know, from a pure career point of view. Why so? Because it, it meant that I had to re, I had to create a different identity for myself. I had to... I'd been a I'd been a Schwab and Alan Schwab's son, and then I'm working in footy myself, and Peter Schwab's cousin, and there was like this collective now, collective group of Schwabbies, you know. <laughs> and then I, uh, I, I, my career's over, effectively, in my um, in my late forties, and I'd been a, a thirty year person in the game and a twenty five year CEO, and I can no longer be those things anymore. So and and w- whether that was fair, whether that's reasonable, whether that that's almost irrelevant, if you like, you know, and mm. and there was almost no point even arguing that, and I and I never sought to, and I never tried to. I knew enough about it to say, okay, well, that's just you can't spend a lifetime making decisions on other people, and then when it turns on you, that you say that's unfair. That just can't work like that. No, but there's a lot of people around you telling you it's unfair. A lot of people, yeah. So you got to just you go, yeah, I, I, I. I I thank you for your empathy and I thank you for the fact you're trying to help me out here and that's all cool but really in the end I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I've got to work out what I'm going to do for the rest of my life and or with the rest of my life and, and so so the, the fact that it um, it ended at Melbourne in the way that it did in the circumstances that it did um, meant that um, I've been able to practice uh, being something else for the last uh, the last five or six years yeah. what what drove you to find something else? Is that out of necessity or is yeah, it out of no choice? I mean, is there, you mentioned as well in your book about um, feelings of shame and embarrassment as well. Yeah, no, that, that's been a bit of an issue for me, probably all my life in lots of ways. It's a very deep one. So even, and, I, and my, my context on that is people will often want to talk to you about decisions you've made and whether you made the right or the wrong ones, you know, mm. as in when you were faced into who you should draft, who you should recruit, who you should... You know all those sorts of decisions. Well, I, I don't have too many reflections on those because, in the end, you you know, assuming that you were making the decisions for the right reasons, um, you were working with whatever knowledge you had available to you. It's very inexact. It's bloody competitive. There's, you know, everyone wants to compare um, sport and business, but the one thing where it doesn't compare is that we go. There's someone trying to beat us every time we play. Like there's yeah. actually someone we on the weekend in the finals there's someone trying to unravel the opposition's game plan and, mm. and they're, they're just as capable and they've got a system probably just as good as yours and and that's how it is the, the things I, I reflect on are the ones where I knew personally that I'd allowed parts of myself to interfere with um, my responses and and so that wasn't the logical decision making process that was more you know the, there'll be more times than people would even know about you know where I knew that that whether it was uh, a lack of courage, whether it was a, uh, I'd allowed my ego, as we mentioned before, just to kick in a little bit, or whether I'd, um, you know, I was, you know, angry. Probably they're the three. And, you know, they're all human emotions, don't get me wrong, but I, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm more than comfortable walking around with the title CEO. And so that, that title, demands of me something other than those responses mm, yeah 
and and so it's all right, you know, getting a nice salary and a nice business card and uh, and wandering around with you know all of the the stuff, which actually, as it turns out, means bugger all to me in funny ways. I thought it meant something to me at the time, but it, in hindsight, it doesn't. Um, probably for those ego reasons, if yeah. you like. Yeah. But I reflect more on those, and and it might be a because uh, I think that's where your learnings really are. It's not. Could I have drafted certain player ahead of someone else? Yeah, of course I could have, because history would show that I drafted a player who was a lesser player with that choice than someone who went five choices later. Well, that's that's an easy one to. But the really the, the stuff which genuinely tests us uh, is um, is when we know we needed to step into a conversation, or we needed to hold our line a little bit stronger, or you know, and, I, and again, I, I think. Fear kicks in a lot for CEOs who worry. They start practicing the art of survival rather than practicing, you know, what's what would a yeah you know, even the definition of integrity is. I, I think it's so vague in business, and I think often in sport as well. And so we've got to have great integrity. I go, okay, my my take on integrity is: does the person do the right thing even when it's hard? And so it requires you by definition to say, okay, what's the right thing here? And and, and, and you have to interpret that. Right? You have to interpret what the right thing is, yeah. Mm. And and yeah, shit, that looks hard. Mm. Am I prepared to do that? You know, uh, like a classic one is that if your organisation's gossips, what, why does that happen? That's because someone hasn't stepped into that. Yeah. I, I see culture as an outcome. For example, you've got to build a culture the same way as you have to build a house. A house is the product of something. Well, you've got to build a culture. Well, you build a culture through the, the accumulation of everyone's behaviours. And so if you're allowing poor behaviours in your organisation or you're not behaving appropriately yourself all the time, you, you're not building a culture anymore. You've stopped doing that. You've basically taken yourself out of that situation. But isn't that the most difficult thing and the big difference between a club environment versus a, a corporate environment? Well, I don't think it has to be because a club is also a corporate Okay, so yeah, there's a, 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 I'm absolutely, and we've seen yeah. the business enterprise associated with it now. I mean, I spoke to Cricket yeah. Australia chairman the other day, four hundred million dollar a year. Yeah, but I think it was always big though. Like yeah. even in, even in, I, I was paying. I, we were paying salaries at um, so the Richmond Footy Club in the nineteen the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties that top end businessmen wouldn't have been getting paid at that yeah. stage. Yeah. Or top end, you know, whether it was the, the number one barrister in town, we were playing our our champion players at that mm-hmm. stage more money than them. The numbers, mm-hmm. are, as as you compare business now to what it was 20 years ago, it's far more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And, all, and all sport is is just a version of that, really, in, in some way. So it either lags or leads, but it's not doing much by much distance you know, in, in regard to it. So yeah, I think it's always had that element to it. Um, but I think even in, and I, I remember having a conversation, it was actually Chris Connolly, and, and he was we, we was, we spent a fair bit of time at Liverpool one year, and we're talking, and he, and he leaned forward at one stage, he said, I think we do this better than them. And what he was referring to is how we develop players, because we, we don't have this opportunity, because of the constraints of our game, we draft younger, yeah. and we develop. The Green Bay Packers are probably the closest to that in terms of the way they've modelled their stuff. They draft young. Mm-hmm. Oh, they recruit young. They don't, they're doing it a little bit more now, but they don't get caught up in the free agency system nearly as much. Whereas, whereas really European football and almost world football now is 
is about just recruiting players. There's not a lot of development happening once the players are in into a system. Whereas we're always into development. We don't ever stop developing players. And so when we we're going over to Liverpool to think about, well, what can we learn from it? Well, we weren't learning anything at that level. Learning a lot of things at other levels, but not at the player development level. Because there's a certain expectation that players have a skill base, they'll bring that skills to whatever the thing is. But then he went forward and he said, and by the way, you have expectations of me that you don't have of yourself. And it was a really poignant thing. As in, you have high expectations of what I do to develop the players as the senior coach of Fremantle at the time, but you don't have the same attitude towards how you develop the people in your organisation. And it was a big penny drop moment for me. So I started, I thought, well, I'm going to have to start thinking like a coach, much more than a CEO. And it was also, I found that that's where the enjoyment was as well. That if you could actually spend time developing people and seeing them grow, because most times we are bringing in someone not as the complete product regardless of what their thing is and if they then go on and become CEOs of the clubs themselves or they end up having great careers well that's a fantastic thing yeah. you were maligned at different points in time though yeah. too of, of reaching down or reaching down a little bit too far in that regard yeah. how do you balance that that desire to to support and mentor versus uh, versus uh, and coach versus yeah. you know having to drill down into some of those details at different points in time do you, do you believe it was a fair criticism at the time or oh, it's hard to know really it's hard to know like it actually if i was an accountant and i was digging deeply into the numbers would people say the same thing no if, if I, if of I, course I, not if i was a, if i was a marketer and i was trying to sell sponsorship would people say that was an unfair thing oh look it's a bit like the partners who have to practice still yeah, a lawyer yeah. or a, or a, an accountant practice, a partner have to practice and lead and yeah. and and manage the practice at the same time. Yeah, yeah, I think you have to have enough insight to know whether you're actually adding value to the decision making process. But if mm. if um, if uh, I think it was because it was you know again I, without wanting to sound defensive because I'm certainly not. Would I, would I do it the same again? I, I think based on based on what I understood at the time and what I brought at the time, I, I don't think it was that far. There might be a few people who. who who, who would say that I did. It's a little bit like, um, there's gonna be a lot of people who, who have opinions on the sport, who really at its core don't understand the sport. Okay, so, so I'm not saying about the people who, I'm not saying don't understand the game, because they clearly understand the game. Yeah. As in watching the game and who's playing well, who's not playing well, they, they get that. But I don't think many people have ever built a culture before. That, that's a far more difficult thing. So each time as a, when you get to speak, even now, if I'm, I'm speaking to you now, you, you've got to ask yourself, who's the audience here? Mm. And so this is this is a little bit different, but if I'm speaking as the CEO of Melbourne Footy Club, Richmond or Freo, you're speaking in, in odd case, you're actually speaking to your board. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. And you're speaking to your, obviously your, your people who love your club, yeah, and they're, they're the people you've got to have the deepest respect for. Because I'm going, at some point, they're staying. So I'm, at some stage, I'm going to go and be whatever I'm going to be. But they're still barracking for Fremantle. They're still there. They're yeah. still, so they're the ones you've got to have the deepest respect for. Mm-hmm. But you're also often speaking to your staff and your players as well, who really pick up on this. Yeah. Because often you don't get to spend much time with those guys. You're not up there. You're, you're, you're spending more time talking to the media, crazy as it is in sport, than you are talking to the whole of your club. You might only get to speak to the whole of your club 
once or twice a year. It's, and it's mad, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, but when you're in the media, you're, you're effectively in your own way speaking to the whole of the club. So I mm. would often then think, okay, who's my audience here? So if I then speak more openly about an insight into the game itself, as in the football itself, and they say, oh, Cameron's always talking about the footy. Well, I'm thinking, well, that's what they want to hear about. <laughs> do they want to know? Do they yeah. want to know how I'm going with the, uh, you know, the debits and credits, or yeah. they want to know how I'm going with, you know, you know the major sponsors of interest. Absolutely, yeah. But, but not, they're not interested in the stuff that I spend 95 percent of my life talking about. But if you have an interesting conversation about who we're recruiting or how the coach is going or what, that's what people genuinely, generally and genuinely, they actually want to hear about that. And so, and because I can hold that conversation a little bit, because that's how I've grown up. That's the game. I was in the football area. That was yeah. my, that was my ticket into the game, if yes, you like. Because yeah. I was a recruiter. Well, do I stop being that all of a sudden? So therefore, I, you know, the, I reckon that the key on that is just try and be yourself, for goodness sake. Mm. Um, but also understand your audience. And um, and I, and I probably, because I love the game. When I was asked a question about the game, that's probably where my eyes lit up a little bit as well. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm happy to have the conversation. Yeah, about yeah. It. yeah. Understood. Yeah, the eyes light up. You, uh, the, you go back and have the shot. <laughs> you do. You do. You do. Every so often, you might play. The, uh, you might just. Uh, you might get stumped. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so I roll back there. It's always a chance, but yeah. Oh, we'd throw a few of these different analogies out all day, yeah, couldn't we? You so dueling metaphors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With. With that though, there's a lot of. I mean, the, the key difference really is the speculation, the 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 amount of the pressure cooker environment for administrators yeah. and players, and yeah. and back to that contentment point from Don Pike. I yeah. mean, how do you how do you sort of manage it? Yeah, no, I, I thought it was, it was really a, powerful. And at I, the end of the conference as well, it was a yeah. statement he prepared, so it was pretty powerful. For him it to was. I actually that. sent him a text. I don't know Don that well. He did a little bit of work with us at, uh, when I was at Frio, mm. and I found him terrific. Mm. And I just said that. I think look, you might have started a really important conversation. You yeah. Might, you might have. And uh, good on you, type stuff. And 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 it's a. Um, but I'm not sure if it's going to go away. But I think what what intrinsic and probably the way I should have answered your question in the first place is we have to be good at doing it ourselves. So if someone said, "Oh, what do you need to be good at to survive this thing?" Mm. Well, you need to be good at that. Yeah. So how do you actually build into your life a process of uh, um, deep? Uh, reflection because that's what's required at a time when you know that there's going to if, if I gave you an extra if you're a senior coach of an AFL club or if you're a CEO of an AFL club and someone gifted you another um, 20 hours well you'd fill it for sure yeah with, and, and you find a way no worries you know, <laughs> just go it's like you know when you're on holidays you go gee what happened to that two weeks I was going to do all these things you haven't done any of them it's that it's that scenario and so what I, I want to spend a long time working out was that it's not about time management. Time, time is, time is, yeah, that's your limited resource, that's mm-hmm. your constrained resource. Uh, but what it is is about your energy management and your attention management. So how do I manage my energy so I get the so I can maintain a uh, that the time I'm actually spending with people is of good value, or the time that I'm spending, whether it's in a creative situation or you know sitting in a room just writing up strategy if I don't maintain good energy during the course of the day you're not going to get the good stuff done but also if I allow myself to get really distracted during that period by the many things which can distract you because there's lots of you know shiny new things there's lots of things buzzing and humming and all lots, those of, sorts issues, of, things. Yeah. lots yep. of stuff going on so the key on it all is how do you actually find your way with that and and I, and I in the end I became okay at that but I only became okay out of it because of, of fluke 
because I was CEO of Fremantle Footy Club and I'm travelling four hours every second week. Yeah. And those four hours became fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I used to just put the headphones on on the plane, have my moleskin notebook, I get a black wing pencil and I draw or I write or whatever and it became that. And then I became um, CEO of Melbourne when I came back and we thought, oh, we'll live you know, really close and I was living in East Melbourne, I was walking to work, how cool is this? But I just took out my four hours of reflection out of my life. Yeah. And so I had to then bring that back in a way which was actually deliberate and that penny dropped way too late for me. I totally underestimated how important those four hours actually were. Mm. And the four hours might have been sitting next to Rick Hart, the president of the club, just chatting. Well, you try and spend four, you try and get a CEO to spend four hours with uh, their chairman. Yeah, It's not an easy thing for, for them to do. And I had that benefit. And so therefore, my, my, a little bit my David White solution is the, the antidote to it all is a wholehearted approach, but it would be wholehearted as it relates to reflection. Are you, the competency that we need to be able to develop as senior leaders now is one of reflection. You have to be, it's a skill you have to evolve and develop and build habits around and create an identity around, all those things. I am someone who reflects and and I, I allocate at least, so if I, if, I, if I was appointed CEO of an organisation tomorrow, the first thing I'd do is, okay, all of you, everyone in this room, grab your diaries now, put two hours aside in the work day to the day, what day of your life are you going to spend two hours reflecting? I don't care if you're out of the office, I don't care if you're in a cafe, I don't care if you're in a library, I don't care, whatever, but it's got to be at least within you know, the, the, the very minimum, it's got a notebook and a pencil or a pen with you. Mm-hmm. And you're going to write and you're going to do stuff. And that's on our time. Because I know that I would actually, that would then you know, amplify all the other value that we're getting from that person. You spoke before about realising the, the benefit in developing others. Mm-hmm. How did you execute on that in some of your later roles within your company? Um, well, I think the main thing is that you always have an element, you always have an opportunity when you're in a conversation to, to teach. But the only means by which you can actually teach is if you've got something to teach. You know, so <laughs> what, what do you want? What, what does that person need from you at yeah. that point? And, and so if you're actually not deliberate in your process of um, how am I assessing, particularly the people who you have uh, the most influence over, those who are reporting to you, mm. and or those who are also influential people in your organisation, whether that's in a footy club, I have no direct relationship with, uh, with the players, but you have a quite a strong indirect relationship, uh, and there might be those who you get to influence. So I always had just a feedback mechanism where I would regularly assessing my people uh, uh, on at least a weekly basis where I'd spend 10 to 15 minutes just writing a few notes based on a, a little framework that I'd utilise. And in the end, if I worked out that the person, there was feedback in this for them, both positive and negative, uh, I'd ask myself, um, first of all, you know, can I back it up? Mm-hmm. You know, can I back it up what I'm about to say to this person, good and bad? I'd then ask myself, uh, you know, do I mean it? You know, like, is it is it important mm. here? You know, and then ask myself, what what's my intent? Why, why am I saying it? Is it coming from a good place? And if it passes those three tests, you know, can you back it up? Is it important? What's your intent? Is your intent good? Well, the person should receive that feedback. That's a good thing for them. And a lot of the time it would be, you know, a, every so often it would be I'd just write them a little letter, just a handwritten letter, you know, to the, and they'd, they'd arrive home that night and there'd be a letter there for them, you know. Um, 
or other times, because and that's that's easier if you're giving them good feedback. You don't want to write, <laughs> you don't want to write the letter if you're giving them bad feedback. Um, or so, send it by text. Yeah, just, yeah, don't worry about that. Uh, many relationships have ended that way. Um, that that you and if you're actually doing that work, what I found is that you then have uh, if you're giving feedback as as a a basis for uh, for a teaching conversation. Well, generally uh, people will. They'll really appreciate that, and mm. and also normalises those types of conversations. So so it stops being the courageous conversation, just starts being the conversation. conversation you're taking yeah. the courage out of it. Yeah, um, that doesn't mean there won't be hard conversations at different times. But if people, rather than asking them, yeah, you've got to be, you've got to have an interest in their life. Don't get me wrong, but the main thing people want from you is stuff which helps them. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that, that helps them grow or develop. And if you find that you've got people who aren't into that. Well, they shouldn't be working for you anyway. Probably not the right role. Yeah, <laughs> no. yeah. So you got you got you actually if you haven't got people of high aptitude, you haven't got people of high learner mentality. And I always say to people, if you're going to actually have one question, you're going to ask a person one question in an interview. Just ask them what they've taught themselves at some stage. You know, mm-hmm. just just first question: Have you ever taught yourself anything? And if they haven't, don't employ them because mm. it's, it's a certain type of person who teaches. That. I don't care if they've taught themselves. The most basic, you know, no, not basic, that's the wrong word. They taught themselves to cook. Yeah, I taught myself to cook, they say. Okay, what do you do? And no, I just get the uh, HelloFresh arrives each night at, no, no. When people have taught themselves to cook, no, I go down the market, I, you know, I've got my favourite butcher, I've got my favourite, you know, fishmonger or whatever it might be, and I've got this recipe from wherever, and I spend hours. No, that's teaching yourself to do stuff. I can taste it, I can feel it, I know what's going on. Rather than just, um, yeah, taught myself how to do the, the basics of it. And I had someone recently who rebuilds beetle cars, you know, yeah, yeah. does the junkyards, does the whole box of dice. Yeah. Know, and takes a, but their eyes light up when they talk about what they've taught themselves. Going yeah. out and picking the parts. And the parts, the yeah. Got, got a little network of these beetle car <laughs> rebuilders. I don't know, yeah, yeah. little groups everywhere, you know. So probably a little meet-up some stage. Yeah. Yeah. With, um, with the time that you've had, mm. what's been the sort of most difficult lesson that you had to learn along that journey? Um, look, I think each each of the setbacks they represent that they represent something different in their own way. But but I think that the, the probably in, in summary would be where I wasn't allowing I'd allowed my situation and circumstances to bring out the worst in me. Would be would be that because we've all got a worst in us. Which was that one? Oh, no, I reckon it's probably five times. Yeah, along the way, thirty years, long time, mate. Long time. Um, no, no, there are times, and often, and by the way, they'd be they'd be different ones too. It's a good question. I know where you're going, where you're going with it, but the there would be times where wouldn't necessarily people would know. Only I'd know. Yeah. Where I, I and every so often you dodged a bullet on it, mm. and there, there then, but I've got to say, for each of those times, there were ones where you might have copped it the other way a little bit. You know, where there might have been an unfair element to it. But but even that's why I'm very. Um, I'm very, you know, people who move away, they eventually get the sack and they carry this thing around them with them forever because they, they say that that final, you know, the decision which was made on them in the end was unfair. Well, I go, you know, I, I, yeah, but I reckon there's probably five other times it could have happened and it didn't, you know. Do you feel more guilt for those times you got through? No, no, not guilt. I just know that they're the ones where I probably, uh, I learnt more about myself at that stage. From that negative context? Yeah, well, I just, that well, I just that knew that, that. So, just where I just knew that, you know, where um, 
where there was a situation or a circumstance so I could have I could have um, as, as I mentioned before not handled better from a cognitive perspective but just handled better from an emotional perspective and um, you know I'm I'm not uh, you know I'm not I'm not as concerned with uh, you know the perceived successes and failures it's more it's more my own take on what was important where I'd lost my way from that perspective and it would look it might have been periods of time out of time too like it might have been I was in that space for 12 months yeah before I shook myself out and I'm thinking gee I'm, I'm, yeah, what, what would I have been like to work with during that period of time? Mm. And, and even then, so the value of a mentor, the value of someone, and that's one of the questions you asked before about, you know, so the, the person who's a mentor in your life is not just someone who, you know, is prepared to have an honest conversation with you, but they're going to have a certain amount of insight as well. And that's why often it goes beyond our, you know, we obviously parenting is a really powerful relationship from that point of view, but most of us grow beyond our parenting because of the specific expertise that we have, our parents because of the specific expertise that we actually have. And, and in my situation, it was a little bit different because my father was an expert at the thing I was trying to become an expert at. And it was very helpful. You know, I've got a, my, my stepdaughter's a designer, for instance. I think I can hold a conversation with her about that because it's something I've got a deep interest in. But man, she's miles ahead of me. I can have a conversation with her, but I can't teach her anything mm. in that way. I might be able to teach her about the creative process, mm-hmm. but not designing. Yeah. And, and I love the conversations I get to have with her because she's, her brain thinks that way. I, I like people who have those, that way of thinking. And, and she's got a wonderful curiosity about her. And, and that's the first stage of any form of uh, learning. What would your father say about, what do you think your father would be saying about you now? Have you um, seen the career and the, your, um, the reflection now oh, I think he wouldn't look at I, my dad was um, probably terribly biased <laughs> which is a wonderful thing about parenting but he was always I always say to people my dad was a very skilled interrupter so he was he was a wonderful person at um, answering a que- or answering a question with a question in a way which actually forced you to think a little bit deeper but not in a not in a um, almost not in a patriarchal way, it was more in just a conversational way. Um, what would he say now? Um, well, I'm, I'm now sort of, I'm now four years older or three years older than Dad was when he died, so it'd be, be an interesting conversation. I'd like to think he would, um, he would love the fact that I, uh, I kept going. I think he would like that, that I, had, I kept on having another go at it. Um, he would uh, he'd marvel at the game, I'd say, that you know, the, the, the conversations that we now have to have in sport that we didn't have mm. to have in those days. And, and I would like to have thought that he would have grown with that. And so we'd have some wonderful conversations about that. Um, he liked the fact that I still draw, because he, he wasn't an artist himself, but uh, I remember I'd, I'd do my, um, my versions of... Um, and my, my art now you'd probably recognise as quite comic book style. I, I, it's, it's, quite, it's a deliberate style that I have that uh, you know I remember drawing my Batmans and my Supermans and all those <laughs> sorts of things and yeah. showing him and and he'd, he'd be uh, you know he'd be as pleased as punch you know that's he used to love seeing that stuff so so the fact that I've probably pursued other things he'd be proud of the kids mm. proud of the relationships I think yeah 
he'd love my wife. Never got to meet my wife, so uh, yeah, he'd love my wife. Yeah, it's um, look, I, I lived in the shadow of a former footballer, um, and always looked up to my dad, and he's he's fortunately still with us. So, so we get the your dad. Peter Chisholm. Oh, I know Peter. Yeah. I met Peter. It's, 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 as soon as you smiled then. I saw your name. I met Peter when um, he made a terrific speech at the, um, at the uh, was it the... The, the, the 150th. Yeah. 150th, yeah. yeah. It was fantastic. About brass. Yeah. 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 So I, I met Peter like a long time ago. He probably wouldn't remember, but he was... Because uh, of Dad's relationship with Alan Aylett. Yeah. And, um, and I remember it was at a barbecue and he was still playing. Mm. And yeah, Chizza, you know, and he's a cheeky little fella, and you know, and uh, and uh, and uh, how old are you? 40, uh, 43. Uh, we were in different age groups then. So it was, uh, but no, I, I remember it was at, uh, I can't remember, it was like, it was like at a country place, but it, there was a little Chizza mm. with it, you had the mo and all that sort of stuff yeah, going. Yeah, start going. Yeah, and uh, yeah, no, it was a, um, no, he was, he was a terrific player. Mm. Terrific player. Feisty. Very know, feisty. Yeah, very and, feisty. Uh, Still very feisty. Is he? Yeah, yeah, feisty. So he, he would have actually fitted in well at Richmond, I reckon. He, would have been, yeah. he, had a bit of, he had a bit of Richmond about him. He did have a lot about him, actually, to yeah. be honest. But yeah. uh, he had a lot no, of Brass. Brassy was his great mentor. Yeah, and Brass would have been very hard on him, I would have yeah. thought. Yeah. yeah, And Brass was a hard man. And, yeah. and Brass would certainly be, in in regard to the mentors that I've, I've had, to find, I found myself in the vicinity of, and probably mentored by people in, in, in Brass's case he would never have sought to mentor me he, I was just in his vicinity um, mm-hmm. and having to do work for him just as very young so there's Tommy Hafey growing up Ron mm-hmm. Brassy and then Alan Jeans yeah so yeah. I had those three people play a very prominent role in, well they're in three of the life. patriarchs in the bloodlines now football coaches yeah very much really, yeah you they? throw Kennedy in and yeah, you Kennedy pretty much well. you got, got them all, all covered and they actually all even when you go even further back they all pretty mm-hmm. much came from Norm Smith Len Smith yeah, as well yeah. yeah so there's actually you could do the bloodlines I've yeah. tried that have you I haven't yeah. gone the full way yet but yeah well um, Clarko would, would be an interesting one too because he's a bit of Kennedy and yeah. a few other things as well and because then you get um, Sheedy to Neil Danaher to yeah. and Clarko and yeah so there's a lot of you know it would be a, no, it'd be a good exercise yeah. <laughs> Pagan's probably one of the ones that slightly fits out it sits out no, we had Brassy though Brassy as well still yeah yeah, yeah, yeah he had Brassy yeah, yeah yeah he was a coach early didn't he yeah, yeah no he had Brassy's we played in the 74 grand final that's yes. right yeah and uh, so he would have, he would have, so he would have been at North when they went from last That's to right. like, getting into a grand final. Yeah. So I assume he would have a pretty strong feel with, mm. with Brass during that period. No yeah, well, I'm fortunate. I'm very fortunate that he's with us, and and we get to, you know, I get the benefit of those discussions with him still. So yeah. I know, yeah. I, I know what you're probably missing out on. Yeah, no, and it was just, you know, in many ways, you just have so much talking to do. You know, yeah. I, I think about that with. Um, yeah, with my own parenting and I've got a transgender daughter so it's actually a um, sort of you have conversations and, and every so often I'll just I'll just say to Evie I say just so you know I've, I've never had this conversation before this is this is like a this is a unique conversation and and if I'm if I'm struggling uh, with it it's because I'm I'm struggling to, uh, to 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 really know how to parent you at this time so you're gonna have to make it easier for can you make it easier for me to parent you? Mm. You know, um, which might mean that you have to share more than you're perhaps comfortable with at this stage. And she's now twenty, so she's and had a really good, you know, been some challenges, but she's yeah. in good space now, and I'm really proud of her. And to actually to know and understand when you're not in a position to have the answers, when there's a certain expectation that you do have the answers, mm. is is 
and you do spend a lot of time as a parent not knowing and you do spend a lot of time as the CEO not knowing yeah. and um, in both cases from time to time you have to pretend a little bit that you know yeah and I, think, pro- I think the difficulty as a parent though I think it's you're more reflecting on your own experience and then projecting that onto yeah. the to your young ones so yeah. that's where I find is the most challenging part it is, yeah. And you find yourself saying the same things as your parents said. Yeah. You didn't believe it then and you don't believe it now. No. <laughs> <laughs> but you just you go to some default you know, position on it. You know? yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, no, I find that to be... It, it, it's probably of all the metaphors which are out there, the parenting metaphor is the strongest one mm. when it comes to leadership. And and I'll, I'll talk about the one where you go from the... The baby goes from the, the womb to the, the hospital and all its safety and... And, and all its um, buttons you can push and all that type of thing for a bit of support and then all of a sudden it's in the back of your car. You know, <laughs> yeah. and you, and you drive, you're driving around the right way, am I doing it? Yeah, you're driving <laughs> yeah. about eight kilometres an hour. And, and it's, that, that I found that probably that my, um, yeah, my each foray into leadership, it, it did feel a little bit like that, you know. But but each of them also, I, I'm, 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 the second kid, you don't drive at eight kilometres an hour. No. So there is, there is the value of the... You know the learned experience, which and the lived experience, which goes with with, with each of them. Mm. But at the same time, you always have to have a um, again. If if you build the, the the process of reflection into it all, where you then say, well, what what did I learn here? What did I, you know, what what did I get from this? And, and where sport is fantastic is it it is is actually great at the what happened conversation. You know, well, it's doing it for you really. <laughs> I suppose it's measuring many ways. Yeah, it I? is, yeah, but yeah. but even in ourselves, and yeah. that's actually can be a distraction to you what happened. Mm. Although every so often I'd go to our guys when, when we felt that we were under pressure and everyone's yelling and screaming at us and we'd say, um, I'd go, well, how wrong are they, really? Like, we're not, we're not saying they're exactly right as in terms of their analysis here. But we're not very watchable at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be hard work barracking for us. Yeah, you know? So yeah. you, you have to have a certain empathy with that. Um, and, but if you're not actually... So sport builds into the what happened. It uses the game... The game that's just been played, or the games that have just been uh, that have been played, and the future game as the context for that learning. There's no doubt about that. But business moves on into the next thing really, really quickly. It does. Um, whereas we, the reason why we analyse and analyse and analyse is because we see that as a wonderful way of developing the person and developing the player and developing the team and all the elements which actually come with it. Yeah. You've uh, into your into your new career as yeah. a now an advisor to CEOs, or and how do you? How do you still all that le- all those learnings into um, advice that you can give now to, to um, new CEOs or emerging CEOs? So I, I build it on three things that that uh, and the sound really, this is going to sound really basic is that I build off story. People remember stories; they don't remember facts. In my experience, so if you can give them the story, and all of the story works off um, things I know I can back up. So I don't talk about what Apple do or what Google do or what Amazon do or Elon Musk does because I really don't know what they did. I, I can read the books, I can see the articles, but that's just someone else's interpretation of them. But I can talk about, even if I'm using the metaphor or the story of people who people don't know, but I just explain who it is. And I, I found, like even talking to people in the States or something like that, and if I talk about Ron Barassi, I say, oh, he's just like Vince Lombardi. Yeah. Or Norm Smith, he's Vince Lombardi. Yeah, you know, yeah, or yeah. if you're talking about Alistair Clarkson, oh, he's Bill Belichick. You yeah. know, okay, all right. So people get now, the context. Yeah, yeah. get it. Yeah. And so if you're going to use story, make sure you can back it up. And the same with metaphor. And I use sport metaphor, and you probably have noticed I use family metaphor mm-hmm. a fair bit. 
uh, and I use art metaphor. They're the sort of the three areas because they're the things I've got a deep experience in, yeah. and they're hopefully they're relatable for enough people. They're not going to be relatable for everyone, but enough people. And then I use models and and uh, frameworks. So, but nothing harder than Year Seven maths. <laughs> so it's if it's it's a two by two or a Venn diagram or a graph or if people are looking at your models, lots of triangles because triangles force you into coming up with three concepts. Threes, yeah, and yeah. then threes. Yeah. yeah, and people remember that then. And and so if you can, if you, before you teach it, have I got a model, a metaphor, and a story is probably the thing. And and that's a that's a learned process. That's something that I, that someone's taught me that. And uh, and it's a really cool way of doing it. And, and so when, when you're in any learning experience, I, I've also got the context now, it's not what I learn, it's what can I teach? Because if I've, if, you, if we have a conversation, I've learned something from this conversation, I then have to align it to my current take on that. And if it actually resonates and it makes sense, I then can teach it as it, you know, someone else who might get the benefit from that. But if I just pass on what you tell me to them, that, that doesn't work, because no. I can't back it up. No. And so if you say, oh, it's like this, I go, yeah, you are right. I was listening to a, a, a podcast this morning, which is, and I've listened to the same podcast four times in a row, just because mm-hmm. I want to draw out the learnings. And it's a, with a guy, Michael Lombardi, who spent time with Belichick and Bill Walsh and these guys yeah, in, yeah. in the US. Yep. It's only for about 30 or 40 minutes with a guy named Cody, Cody Royal, who I'm doing a podcast with. So I thought I'd better have a bit of a dig into what the stuff he does is. And it's fantastic. Mm. It's fantastic. So straight away I go, yeah, I can relate to that learning because yes, I can relate to the elite sport framing of it, but gee, I haven't thought of it that way before and now I've got a clarity around that. Mm-hmm. And then I can bring the story in and even a couple of things I've spoken today were from a podcast that I heard this morning because mm-hmm. I know that I can then test it out a little bit because yeah, yeah. you have these sorts of conversations. Yeah. Um, and so but being taking yourself into a creative mindset from a teaching perspective, I think is fundamental as it is from a CEO point of view. And most of it I picked up by being a full-time artist for a few years. So that's that's where that came from. And so I thought that actually taking myself out of the... I'd pretty much packed up my whole previous life into a box. It was uh, it was in the attic, but it wasn't quite in the long-term storage or wasn't, <laughs> hadn't quite made it to the incinerator yet. Um, uh, and thinking that it had no value at all by studying art for a full, few years... I actually realized that there was a value in it, you know, and, and then coming out of that and getting my mojo back a little bit and um, I dusted it all off. And, and the, the great thing about teaching leadership or mentoring leaders is that every experience you have, you've had has a value, you know, like we've probably spent half the conversations talking about stuff I haven't done well, really. And, and whereas in, um, when I'm a CEO of an AFL club, I'm avoiding those conversations like the play because I don't want people to think these things. Whereas now I say, no, this is what I learned and yeah. good on you. you know? Yeah, I think though, naturally though too, we can be quite critical of ourselves. So it does, yeah. you know, it does tend to shape down that path. Yeah, it does. But I think it's also now I'm comfortable with it. Look, mm. it is a, um, anyone who doesn't actually say that they stuffed up, well, they're just kidding themselves. Oh, they're full of it. Yeah, it's, right, <laughs> it's just a whole lack of humility in it yeah. all. And, and, and that's the one, I'd say the single best change, even though we've got the least humble leaders, you know, running our governments, I've probably we've ever had, you know, I don't know, I obviously Hitler lacked a bit of humility and a few others along the way, but, but just the people you go, why can't you guys just say, look, this is, and because they, we've th- they think we've created this system where people don't want to hear that because it's a, a heroes and villains world and mm. social media has taken all the nuance out of it all, but people are far more sensible than that. Mm. 
And so to get people up there and particularly inside your organisations, to actually go in and, and say to your, your leadership team, so look, I think I put the wrong court on this. I just lost my way for a few weeks there. Look, I think I'm back, I'm okay, but can you guys you know, pull me up next Help time you see me yeah. going down that track? And, and there's, a, there's a whole lot of stuff with vulnerability and, and, and the conversation around, around it now, and, and Brene Brown's stuff's fantastic with all this. But I was reading a guy, um, David White, who I, I really love his work, and he talked about vulnerability, and he says, firstly, one, it's a, it's, it's a closer reflection of who you are. You know, you're not pretending to be anything other than you. Brene Brown would also say in vulnerability, don't walk in the room and say, look, I don't know what I'm doing. That's like a step too far. Yeah. Secondly, stuff does happen to us, mm-hmm. which we have absolutely, a large whack of life is out of our control, mm-hmm. you know, in that, in that way. And the final one is that it's an invitation for people to help you. Yeah. So you're opening yourself up and say, look, actually, I need some help on this. Whether people trust you enough to go and step into that space or people have enough gumption to, to step into that space well that that remains to be seen but at least you've created the invitation for people to help you and so I, I would say now again as a little bit of reflection I'd probably be I, I think I was okay with this in the last few years of it all mm-hmm. but for the first few years it was like you know you had your bloody Superman cape on you know really really Batman. Batman a bit more Batman <laughs> no, even was, Superman we all had a little bit of kryptonite of course <laughs> Superman's only interesting because of kryptonite well it'd be really boring if it wasn't for kryptonite so actually yeah. again the, and that's just the art metaphor that's why a lot of my stuff is superhero like is that you would have seen it as well with your dad that these mm-hmm. guys who were superhuman in lots of ways they are, yeah but really they've got lots of kryptonite going on <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's in that's in the little lead cabinet somewhere yeah somewhere yeah. Hidden, somewhere along the way <laughs> i know exactly what you're talking about yeah. look the one of the questions I have been asking every interviewee is if you had a chance to sit down with someone who's been through a crisis yeah. or, or led through a crisis, who would you, who would you love to meet with? Um, who's led through a crisis? Um, I think it would probably, let me think, let me think. Um, look, I get, I get drawn to the sports stuff. Uh, obviously what happened with cricket was, was, um, was, was massive and, Unbelievably noisy as well it was, yeah. um, and to actually to have made sense during that period of time and work out what needed to change, like because there was actually a there's a uh, there's there's clearly a need to change, but also I think part of it was a recognition of um, who who created the problem here and what actually ultimately if there's really poor behaviour inside a thing, um, it can often be an amplification of something that. You know, we created someone online and, and I think I did that a couple of times where I pushed and pushed and pushed on a certain level yeah. and, and, and then it got taken a, a, you know, further than it, than it needed to at different times um, so that would be uh, and I've been able to know enough about that to know there would be some, some, some wonderful learnings I think the, the I think the Black Saturday stuff had a, like a profound effect on most Victorians it did. you know mm. and had a couple of wonderful opportunities with that uh, in in that we were it was actually when Jimmy Steins um, first became president of Melbourne I was CEO we went up to um, uh, to King, uh, King Lake, Lake yeah. yeah and uh, we were there the day they voted to keep playing oh yeah yeah and we took up because it was just they had no staff and so right, yeah. so we took up and one thing we had was there's no lack of footy boots in a footy club so we got all the players just to bring in their old footy boots and mm. chuck them in a the car and all their kit and we basically went up to King Lake with you know you know 
every time you change a sponsor in a footy club, you end up having to change all the kit. You know? Yeah. Um, and so we had all this stuff and gave it to them, and they voted to uh, to stay in. And then they actually made the grand final that year. They got beaten on the grand final day, and by then Jim had got very sick. Yeah. And we were up at King Lake. Uh, for grand final day where they were releasing balloons for each person who they knew had been killed and there was a, yeah so it's just a, a wonderful thing you know in terms of the, the spirit of it all that, that, that but I'm, I remember just for the first time I think because you can um, you can smell the smoke you can feel the fear you can and and everyone, see the aftermath there. yeah and everyone knew someone who was and it was an area it was when I was in recruiting it was partly the Melbourne zone as well so I'd watched footy in the area and it was a beautiful place and I cycle, so it's an area I go to. Yeah, I, I would think that to, particularly now, you know, ten years on, to to speak with those people, and um, there's so much trauma associated with that stuff that uh, that you know, there's there's a certain grieving and a certain hardship which is never going to leave people, but just to know individually, you know how how they coped you know those people who had to take responsibility for the lives of others but at the same time not ruin themselves I think that's the stuff I relate most to where it's where it's you're you're having to leave because you have no choice Um, but when when it all dies down everyone else has gone on with the rest of the life they're all gone yeah how how are you handling it now that's where the resilience that human spirit really comes in. It does, and we've got more of it than we think, haven't we? You know, but then you know, it, it does reach breaking points as we've sadly learned the last, the last little while with, with, with Danny Frawley. But you know, that you have those. Um, oh, there wouldn't be anyone in my world who hasn't had a deep reflection as a mm. result of that. Um, you said yourself that you got to some terrible moments yourself yeah. during that time. Was it? Did you ever feel that you were pushed to that point yourself? No, no I, I pushed myself to that point. Oh no, no, that's no, that's the wrong thing to say. Look, I, I um, you know, just had my own stuff I had to deal with. You know that, and I call it a bit of a gift now in, in some ways because I, I don't think I necessarily would have the insight into myself if I hadn't gone into that. And and you know is you know there for for all our for all our setbacks at different times, there, there's obviously a learning in it. And that would you? Would you have wanted it to happen again? Would you would you would you give back the insight so I could have what I had back? No, well clearly you wouldn't, you know. But I would say, um, you know, for instance, having to deal, you know, with uh, and and I and I I probably learnt fairly early in the piece I, that I there was something a bit different about when I had to get healthy in certain ways and to actually start thinking of myself as a healthy person was a was a was a big step, you know, that notion of identity. Do I see myself as healthy? Um, and at the same time, having to lead. And I never, I never, uh, I never saw one as impacting the other. And in fact, I, I felt that the um, the resilience that I was building, or the metal that I was building for myself, um, as part of being uh, of just just to get along, was helping me as a leader anyway mm. and I now call it a bit of a gift the same way as I talk about Evie as a gift in that you know uh, there's a certain grieving which comes with uh, a you know a child changing gender uh, because of you know what you not what you haven't got anymore but you've got something else you've got yep. something you know, and, and I call that a, a, I call that a, 
a gift of that. Um, losing my dad uh, in a traumatic situation, I'd much sooner have my dad than the learning. Mm. But there was there is a learning. And probably in its own way uh, meant that I stopped being Alan Schwab's son the same way as, you know, you've probably been Jesus' son your whole life. You know, yeah. that's just how it is. Mm. And all of a sudden I was, you know, so for, for not having the, the mentor and the, the hero, at least I've got, you know, in time I stopped being that, you know, because life moves on. Mm. But the two things I'd say that I've had to look after more than anything is the two things I mentioned before is my energy and my attention. And and because I practice those things a lot, I, I stay relatively healthy, I train a lot, I've got a half-decent um, um practice of meditation I certainly watch what I eat in the main uh, I try to get enough sleep you know I try to spend time with people I care most about those mm. those sort of things I I, I, I I like to make stuff so I'm into the creative and I find those things to be the the antidote to yeah. whatever the other side of the, the ledger might actually start to look like yeah. well um uh, it's certainly been a real gift speaking to you today so I really appreciate uh, the insight you've shared with us, the, um, the personal perspectives that you've given us and uh, um, I suppose the awareness that we can take away for ourselves and apply in our own context. So, so Cameron, thank you so much for your time and insight today. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. Oh, it's been a pleasure and uh, good to have another chat to a son of. Take it out in back for me. Oh, well, indeed. Well, you indeed. take care. You too. This episode is brought to you by Left of Boom. We empower leaders to respond to crisis proactively and with confidence.